0: Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years, I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm very happy to have John Sweeney back with me on the podcast. Some of you remember him because we talked with him about his Thomas Merton book. And if you've not heard that uh, particular recording, I encourage you to go back and check out that podcast. Um, Really excellent and so interesting and uh, find a copy of the book as well. But today um, we're going to be talking to John about his New book called Feed the Wolf, befriending our fears in the way of Saint Francis. Uh, I was very intrigued by the title, and I definitely wanted to talk with John again. And so, those of you who are um, unfamiliar with John, he is an award winning contemporary spiritual writer. And I'm reading this from um, from the flyleaf of his current book he is the author of 30 books including the complete francis of assisi and he is considered the authoritative voice on the life and spirituality of saint francis that i did not know so that was so interesting for me to learn and um, so we have an expert with us today and i'm excited about that so john welcome back to faith conversations
1: Thank you, Anita. And I got to say, um, I immediately love anyone who uses the word flyleaf.
0: <laughs> you do? <too>? Okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> just that I knew what it was called or just, it, I don't well, know.
1: No one calls it that anymore. It's one of those great old book words, you know, and so I, yes. I, I, just, I smiled from ear to ear when you said flyleaf.
0: Well, I was just talking with a friend this morning saying that when I speak, I speak from a manuscript. I write it all out. I am not a bullet point speaker. I don't appear like I'm reading. But, and what I said to her was, because I want to use all of the good quality words that I've written in the manuscript that might not come out of my mouth if I were doing a bullet point speech. So anyway, so that makes me happy, actually, (laughs) that you said that. Uh, I want to know from you where your interest first, I mean, where your interest in St. Francis originated? I mean, you've been writing, reading, writing about him for 20, probably more than that, years. Where did that um, interest come from?
1: Well, uh, in in the scope of my life, it came in high school after I read a couple of books. I mean, for me, things usually begin with books and result in books. But When I was in high school, I encountered the first biography that I I had seen of a saint, any saint, uh, because I grew up in a tradition that didn't regard saints as something to emulate or even a word that we used. But I checked out of the public library an old book about Saint Francis. Uh, I had never encountered his life. I'd never heard his story. I was at a fragile time in my own life because I was a teenager. Um, Every teenager is fragile and that life just spoke to me that that way of being christian that way of imitating the way of jesus so intimately and carefully um and plus the sort of extravagance and drama uh, the dramatic flair of that life the uh the trouble he had with his father uh the way that he flaunted a lot of uh, convention um It was, you know, for a teenager in particular, but I think probably for anyone, but for a teenager, it really just spoke to me. So then I was on a course of wanting to know more and more.
0: And I think it's especially interesting because, yes, um, in the Protestant tradition, uh, we're not really taught about um, saints or we're we're all saints, you know. (laughs) Saints of God. If you have a relationship with God, we're often told, you know, you're a saint and we're all saints. And and so, and sometimes we will really stiff arm a conversation about saints because we don't think anyone can really be elevated like what we see um, in the Catholic Church. And yet I have gleaned so much. I'm just realizing this through, um, I think it was. Um, oh, and how can I forget his name? I love his writing, um, Jesuit's Guide to Almost Everything, and, you know, Father, James, about. Martin. Father James Martin. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, his book on the saints, and there have been others too that I've been exposed to that are so meaty. I mean, I feel like I've gleaned so much, but that's not That has never been an emphasis in the tradition that I've grown up in. And so what did you do with that? After you read this book as a teenager about St. Francis, did you just kind of tuck that away or did you look for books on other saints or did you want to know more about him specifically?
1: I I was in the midst of uh, sort of dramatically changing my own life, uh, religiously and spiritually, most of all. I grew up in a evangelical church that board, was borderline fundamentalist. And I, you know, very quickly, I'll just say that my journey was that I went from that tradition to eventually becoming a Roman Catholic. And in the middle was a really good Episcopalian for a long time. But but where it really turned for me was when I, when I encountered the life of Francis of Assisi, and I was also at the same time reading uh, a lot of Thomas Merton, which you and I talked about the last time. Mm-hmm. And so I then spent a few years contemplating very seriously a monastic vocation. Um, uh, so I was I was taking very seriously what I read, and again, that's also because I was a teenager. You take everything really seriously when true. You're, I I sort of wish we could all remain as serious as we were when we were seventeen. Yes. Uh, so. Um, it became something that I I took upon very urgently um, uh, in terms of what my form of life should be. And when it became clear, I was not going to follow a monastic vocation, instead I got married and I started having children and so on. I still took very carefully the principles of Francis and Franciscan spirituality, uh, 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 took them very seriously in my own life and tried to make decisions based on following that particular way. Of following the path of Jesus.
0: For the sake of the Protestant listeners to this podcast, um, I, I want to ask this question. Franciscan brothers, are Franciscans always brothers and not priests? No, no, Thank they're you. not.
1: Okay. No, um, I mean, the, the one distinction that is the, the mistake that's made by almost everyone is that you really don't call Franciscans monks? They're called friars.
0: Friars, um, yes.
1: Francis created the friar essentially in the in the uh, early 1200s, uh, and deliberately did not become a monk. A friar is, you know, think of it as sort of a, a friar is a walkabout uh, monk, uh, someone who takes the same sort of vows that monks do, except for the except for a similar vow of stability which for a monk is a vow to a very particular place and uh, monastery and so on. And for a friar, uh, the vocation is to keep moving, essentially. So, so that's the difference. But I think maybe what you're tapping into in your question is that Francis of Assisi sort of famously never became a priest. Right. He did not want to become a priest. He was reacting to what today we still very much call clericalism, Something that we would like to get rid of in the Catholic Church, if we could, uh, which is the uh, the sort of power and authority and sometimes kind of haughty uh, role of leadership that some priests take on, in addition to all the great things that priests take on. Um, Francis was responding to that even in his own day and didn't want that sort of power and authority. He deliberately wanted to be little and small, um, so his friars were called. Uh, friars minor, you know, literally small friars.
0: Uh, you, you just mentioned a year, the 1200s, but g- give us the time period in which Francis lived
1: 1181 to 1226.
0: Okay. I can't do the math that fast in my head. How many years did he live? <laughs>
1: uh, 45, 46 years.
0: So he, not that long, though, maybe that time, that age, maybe that was an average lifespan. Not sure.
1: Well, it might have been, been an average lifespan, but part of the story of Francis of Assisi is that he died from uh, illness and uh, debilitation and breakdown of his body, um, all of those things that came as a result, a direct result probably of his work. You know, he was working with people who had what was called then leprosy, which we now call Hansen's disease, and he was working with people of all kinds of other ailments and so on, of course, in a sort of pre-scientific era when there was no understanding really of germs and all of that sort of thing, but even if there was an understanding of germs and all that sort of thing, Francis wouldn't have cared a whole lot about it anyway, so So the people who he cared for throughout his life, uh, whatever they were dying from, uh, probably ended up killing him, too.
0: So let's step back. You know, I asked about how you became interested in Francis. How did Francis choose the path that he decided to take? And I know this was not something that um, his family or certainly his father was happy about.
1: No, his father wanted him probably first of all to follow in the family business, which was uh, he was a merchant um, selling fine cloth. It was the early days of of a trade with the East, when uh, fancy dyes, uh, purples and blacks and things like that, fancy dyes were available to people who sold and prepared cloth and clothing. Um, and then um, his and and. Pietro Bernardone, who was uh, Francis's father, was one of these merchants. So he was constantly traveling and selling these sort of fancy goods. So Francis grew up wearing this sort of fancy clothing. That's part of Francis's story. Is you have to picture the sort of dandy young man wearing the beautiful clothes, uh, and he goes from that to you know deliberately wearing rags. That's that's part of the drama of his story and the dramatic flair. Of Francis himself but after Francis clearly wasn't going to go into the family business uh, his father then supported the idea of him becoming a knight Uh, he bought the finest armor to put on his son so that he could go off with other would-be knights to fight in various little wars and crusades and things and Francis tried that and failed pretty miserably at it and so it was then soon after that that Francis, uh, for a variety of reasons and in a, in a variety of circumstances, started to hear God uh, God's voice. I mean, he, you know, in the in the hagiographical tradition, he started to hear God speak to him. But you also could say that he started to hear God's voice because he was finally uh, listening.
0: Right. Mm. Uh, I think it's important to hear some of the early days of his life and where, how, you know, how he was raised and where he came from, because most of us, and I don't, certainly in the Protestant tradition, I don't know if this is true in the Catholic church as well, but most of us picture Francis uh, you know I take walks around my neighborhood all the time and what do I see on the front lawns of various places you know exactly what I'm going to say right St. Francis with the bird on the shoulder and and uh his hand as a bird bath or a bird feeder or whatever something to that effect and so we uh, we have this vision of Francis uh being with Talking to the animals, sort of a modern—well, not a modern day, but an old-time Doctor Doolittle, uh, if you will. But you know that's the vision that we have of Francis because um, of of uh, lawn art. <laughs> if I, I hate to say that, but that's where our vision often has come from. What we see displayed. So, we talk about what transpired. From the point where Francis is like, I'm not putting on this armor, and I'm I'm going a different direction, telling his father that, and and actually, is a really dramatic scene that you talk about in the book where um, he stands before not only his father but a whole group of others and disrobes completely, and and I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but but talk about him in that space or, or moving forward into what gave us the impression that he is this man who talked with the animals, this saint who was always with the animals.
1: Well, let me, so let me say three things and they're both sort of episodes in his life. The first one is what you referred to is Francis in front of the whole town of Assisi. Uh, standing in front of the bishop's palace, which is where uh, he's going to be confronted by his father, who is finally fed up with his wayward son. Francis has also, by this point, uh, stolen from the father, which is not commendable on any level. But um, it was—it was again what a youthful response to the impulse of of you know conversion was telling him. Uh, take some of my dad's money and give it to the poor you know he thought he was robin hood or something he had not yet figured out what the right way was to do this so his father had a reasonable beef against the son and and wanted to confront him in front of the bishop who was supposed to be the judge of some sort and the father was demanding you know uh, an apology and repentance and so on and Francis really would have none of it. Francis responded by saying, um, "You want, you know, you don't want me to take from you anymore. You want me to give back to you what is yours." Um, and then, as you said, he then dramatically stripped off all of his clothes. And again, you have to remember what I said before that his father was a a merchant of clothing. So Francis was still wearing his dad's fancy clothes. Okay. Stripped off all that clothes threw it at his father's feet and said, there you go. You know, now you're no longer my father and I only have a father in heaven. Now, I want to quickly say this because I think this is so important to say. Every year when Father's Day is rolling around, I tell people about this story that I just told you. And I say, so listen, I know that a lot of us, a lot of you have trouble on Father's Day. And it's not simply sometimes because your father has died and you're sad. Sometimes we have trouble on Father's Day because some of us have trouble with our fathers. And you need to know that, you know, the world's most popular saint, Francis of Assisi, is the world's most popular saint, never reconciled with his father. You know, there's something in that. I don't know. I I don't think it necessarily means it's the way to go. (laughs) I mean, it is one of the Ten Commandments that we're supposed to honor our father and mother, but Francis did not. So anyway, I just I, I always think it's important. And I think people sometimes find that consoling. Because sometimes you know we find a, we find it unable to uh, to to reconcile with our with our parents. So anyway, the second episode um, is when Francis first preached to the birds. Uh, this is where he got the reputation you're talking about. And I love the Francis Bird Bath as much as anyone. I mean, this is a beautiful image, you know. And of course, they're everywhere. I have some gorgeous uh, imagery of this myself, and. Every time I see a beautiful one, I take a picture of it. And, you know, I mean, I I love it, but I I always like people to know or to discover that when Francis first preached to the birds, the very first time this happened was when he was trying to discern what his vocation would be or should be. Should he be a hermit off in the mountains who prays and lives a contemplative life? Because there were a lot of those then, and he knew what that was. Or should he be something else? Should he be someone who's essentially living for others, um, who still is gonna pray a lot, but who is going to spend his life helping and serving others? And he asked two of his best friends, one of whom was Claire of Assisi, a name that people have heard, I'm sure. And the and and you know, the word came back that he really should serve others and that he should preach and he should teach and he should he should be living a very active life. Well, there was no one then who wanted to hear him preach or teach. He was, I mean, who was he? He was this, he was this kid who had flaunted in front of his father and, and now was doing some very quixotic, strange things in town. And everybody thought he was nuts, probably. Um, so he was a little confused and discouraged. And that's one of the things I love about Francis is that he has these moments all the time where he's confused and discouraged. And it's really easy to relate to him. And he goes walking outside of the gates of Assisi by himself because no one else wants to hear him or, or see him or talk to him. And he doesn't have any friends anymore because they all think he's crazy. And he comes walking along the road and there's a whole bunch of birds gathered there. And he decides to preach to them. I mean, who knows why? <laughs> you know, no one else wanted to listen. So he said, you know, he starts to talk to birds. And I, I think that's just fabulous. But then the last episode I, I'll quickly say is that I think what's more important than the fact that fish and birds and, you know, turtles and whatever (laughs) really liked Francis. I think what's more important and, and something we can learn, I hope is that Francis clearly over the course of his uh, life, learned how to become more gentle. He went from living coarsely and thoughtlessly to living more thoughtfully and gently. Um, Midway through his sort of religious career, we see him practicing being gentle. And so it's not just sort of the birds on the fingers, but it is kind of the birds on the fingers. But it's also things like, you know, we see him rescuing worms from the roadway when it rains. And we see him uh, even reverently walking over rocks and, and advising others to do likewise and to being quiet instead of being loud. And I, I think there's, there's just a lot to, there's, there's a lot of depth to plumb there. Um, uh, gentleness uh, as much or more than animal lover.
0: So I, I, love, I love that. And I also have to share that, that I, in Northern Maine where I'm from, I've stood and held my hand out with birdseed before and had black capped chickadees come and land. Yes. And I felt that Fra- St. Francis moment. <laughs>
1: That is a St. Francis moment. And
0: loved that, certainly. Um, I, I also had to mention that, you know, you mentioned Claire, and uh, I'll let you say something. This is my knowledge of St. Francis before reading Feed the Wolf. Uh, I, I always thought Claire was his sister, as in sibling, blood relative sister. Wait, wait, was she? No. No, no, no. no. Yeah, thank you. I'm like, as soon as I'm saying that, wait, I've got to think back. No. So that's what I always thought until reading this and reading who was drawn to him and eventually kind of amassing, you know, not just five or six, but like five or 6,000 friars, right? Eventually. Um, But was Claire the only female in this group?
1: Well, there was was one day or a couple of days, when she was the only female in the group, she joined uh, this sort of ragtag group of guys who were then in the valley below Assisi, outside of town, trying to live intentionally in poverty, uh, in a natural sort of way, living out in an open field or in little you know, lean-to huts and so on. Again, the people in town probably thought they were nuts. And it was 1212, it was Palm Sunday, the year 1212. So the, the movement was still pretty young, pretty fresh. It it hadn't really gotten started until about 1208, 1209. So okay. it was just three years in and uh, Claire ran away from home, essentially. She was a, a late teenager at the time. She was expected to get married like every young lovely girl was supposed to do. Uh, mm-hmm her family certainly had that uh, well arranged for her and she wanted nothing of it. She didn't want to be married. She, she had seen Francis in town. Mm -hmm. She had known him her whole life in some way or another, because it's a small town and, and their families knew each other and they, she knew of him and they had some kind of uh, relationship beforehand, but it certainly wasn't a sibling and it was not a a girlfriend boyfriend thing which is portrayed in the saccharine movies but uh she ran away from home uh went down in the in the night to go and join these guys and for a brief moment for a day for two days maybe she was they didn't know what to call her even francis called her a brother because there were no women there weren't supposed to be any women there mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so um they didn't know what to call her she was she was one of the guys for a couple of the <laughs> And her family followed her and tried to physically drag her back and were unsuccessful. Um, and then very soon, her sister came to join her. So, so pretty soon, there was another uh, female. And then pretty soon after that, I think they all realized that they couldn't have the men and the women together. That was a scandal, particularly, you know, in 1212. I mean it's even difficult to figure out now. There are religious communities now where the men and the women try to live together and they have trouble figuring it out. But they certainly couldn't figure that out in 1212. So then quickly, uh, Claire became the founder or the co-founder with Francis of what is referred to as the second order, uh, the Sisters of St. Clair. And so so that's why you've heard her called his sister because, you know, they were brothers and sisters, but that's a religious term, you know?
0: Right. (laughs) Nothing to do with blood relation. (laughs) Right. All right. Uh, One of the things that you say in the the introduction of the book, um, you know, having studied Francis' life for 25 years now at the writing of this book, you say, I'll tell you the single most interesting thing about him is that he shows what he believes rather than tells it. And I think and I'll have you say a little bit more about that, but I think that's something for us to pay attention to. Um, I, I, because I think it's so easy to spew a bunch of words and it's a lot harder to really live it.
1: Yes. Yes. And you know, there are some other saints who have done likewise. I've I've been reading a lot of mother Teresa lately Mm -hmm. and she's someone else, you know, sort of of our own, Generation, or at least right. you I mean, we're old enough that uh, we feel like we. I sort of grew up with watching Mother Teresa on television. You know? Yep, uh, But she she was the same way. Uh, but Francis was kind of the originator of that uh, teaching, was to say say less and to live more. Um, and he 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 was of a a religious order that was a preaching order. The Franciscans began at the same time as the Dominicans. They, they, they started at the same time. They grew up at the same time. They both were what is called, what are called preaching orders. So the friars were supposed to go out and preach. I mean, Francis, there are episodes in the story of Francis in those early days when Francis would actually rebuke one of his fellow friars for refusing to go out and preach because, you know, maybe the friar wanted to pray all, all afternoon. And Francis said, well, that's fine. I'm glad that you're going to pray a lot, but you need to go preach too so they were supposed to use words it's just that the real innovation of francis was that even when he used words he would use very few of them and that he would usually use them dramatically he would use gestures i mean he gave for instance what's what's often called his ashes sermon where where he he circled uh, made a big circle of ashes and sat down in the middle of it and it was and and then said very little about meaning of remembering your death in order that you can live more profoundly Mm -hmm. Um, he had he had gestures you know of all kinds that he used and sometimes preaching for those early franciscans meant going out into the fields with the people who were working and working alongside them and singing you know to preach Mm -hmm. was to sing um, you know, what we would think of as sort of gospel songs. So so even preaching, which was ubiquitous among Francis and his brothers and sisters, well, brothers, not sisters. The sisters did something else. But um, even the preaching was of very few words. And most often it was what they did that mattered. It was the caring for the poor or the caring for those who were sick or ill or um, uh, begging for their bread and, uh, you know, so on and so on.
0: That's, it's so interesting because what it makes me think of having grown up in a pastor's home and been in ministry settings my entire life is that I have heard my fair share of sermons, most of them way too long. <laughs> and the shorter, the better as I age. It's like, and I also recognize that shorter is harder. Oh, Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I, I, often, I often tell friends uh, when this subject comes up that there was a year when I lived in Chicago and I went to mass, you know, I went to a daily mass in the morning and the priest, I just remember sitting there thinking every morning, thinking that he was brilliant because, uh, you know, there'd be the readings, you know, the gospel reading and the Psalm and so on, or the, and the old Testament reading. And he would get up and I swear it would be like 90 seconds he would get up and he would say something about each of the readings and he would weave them together in some simple little memorable way that, and then he would sit down in about 90 seconds. And I would think I got it. Wow, I got it. And I would, and I would sort of take that out for the rest of the day. Um, But, but I, you know, I grew up in the same tradition that you did. And so I, of course, I remember the 45 minute sermons and I grew up, I wanted to be one of those guys. I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to be when I was growing up.
0: Well, which makes sense. I mean, you use words so well. I'm glad you started writing. <laughs> Excellent
1: well, choice. Now I suppose I, I I could be criticized for writing with way too many words. And so, you know, the, there's different kinds of preaching, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, we have to talk about the title of the book, Feed the Wolf. And I love this chapter. Um Somewhere, you know, I, and I have to say this too. Um, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but like your Thomas Merton book, I also listened to the audiobook of Feed the Wolf. And I wish I had done it just last week. I listened to it about three weeks ago. So um, I'm, this is good refreshing, refreshment for me. Um, I, I so recommend audiobooks. I, there's, you just take things in in a different way and, um, I really have enjoyed, I did enjoy listening to Feed the Wolf, but we've got to talk about that title. Um, most of, and maybe this is, pro, you know, Protestants search, certainly, but maybe Catholics alike do not know the Feed the Wolf reference as it um, relates to St. Francis. So talk about the the story about the village that, um, uh, you know, had, well, yeah, I'll just let you tell the story. Because I think this is really interesting because it has to do with um, a part of ha- who Francis became, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, this, well the, so the literal story of Feed the Wolf, that, I mean, there's the literal story, and then there's the way in which I use yes. the metaphor. So yes, thank the two, you. But the literal story <clears throat> is that uh, Gubbio, the town of Gubbio, is not far from Assisi. And Francis was often uh, asked to come to town, um, whether in Gubbio or in Florence or in uh, uh, Siena or, you know, any of these towns that weren't too far from Assisi. He was often asked to come to do something, to to preach or to meet someone or to care for someone or to open, uh, you know, a, a hospital and so on. So this was an instance where Francis was asked to come to this little town called Gubbio, because in this case, there was a rampaging wolf. And the story fits with, you know, Francis being the, the animal loving saint, but it's a little bit different because this is a, a dangerous, a dangerous animal who's, who he's asked to come and see. This is, not, this is not, you know, birds who are gonna perch on his fingertips or, or a fish that he's going to bless and put back in the lake. And so he gets to Gubbio and he finds out that this wolf has been um, hurting people, killing people, um, taking food from the villagers, threatening them, that they've been trying to get rid of it and and they're at their wits end, they don't know what to do, so that's why they call him. The profound thing, I believe, uh, is that the first thing that Francis does is that he goes out to meet the wolf. And that's that's the point at which I start using this as a metaphor for our lives. the point is, um, we are frightened by all kinds of things, and I think the spirituality of Francis of Assisi, what he shows us, is how to respond to our own fears and our own vulnerabilities, and it's not to avoid them. It's to face them and to, and to trust God uh, in our, with our lives, but also to walk right into our fears and to face our vulnerabilities in the way that Francis went out to meet that wolf. So Francis goes out to meet the wolf, and then the story takes on slightly mythical proportions, but it's a beautiful story. He, he, he makes a deal with the wolf. Um, the deal is that the wolf will leave the people alone. He'll, the wolf will stop threatening them, stop being a threat, and the people in response will feed the wolf. <clears throat> And that's what happens for a couple of years. And then the wolf eventually get, grows old and dies. And he's, he's referred to by Francis as brother wolf. Yes. Because Francis did have a very way ahead of his time way of approaching creatures, you know, cross species relationships of seeing them as his siblings. Um, so, you know, a wolf was not an it. A wolf was a brother or a sister or a sibling. So that's also part of the metaphors that I think we need to need to see who our siblings are.
0: Well, I think the other piece that came to mind as I read this was uh, how we also need to be curious about our fears. Um, Curious about those things that uh, make us shake our head, shudder or, back away from, you know, what's, what's that all about, not just stiff arm it or try and get rid of it or what, you know, I think that, that other piece, I think something else that you wrote about um, in that chapter, telling that particular story, um, the chapter Feed the Wolf was uh, how your growth, maturation, spiritual conversion is not for yourself, but for the community.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: uh, I think I love that, point so much um spiritual formation the definition that i've heard is the process of being formed into the image of christ for the sake of others and and there it is francis life what what he's about and i thought that was beautiful and important that story and then you go on as you say and use it Uh, as a metaphor. And I love that. I think it's really an important piece of the whole.
1: I I think we're very good at avoiding what scares us and avoiding what it is that makes us feel vulnerable. And I think in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, as self-care has become more and more important in our lives, and I'm not belittling that. I think it's good that self-care has become more important. But on the other hand, it has also taught us to find new ways and additional ways to avoid our fears and avoid what makes, and and to say, well, I feel vulnerable, so I'm going to back away from that. And, you know, sometimes that's the right approach. But at the same time, what I suggest is that I think that what frightens each of us is sometimes also what pulls us away from God, because it pulls us away from each other. And I think the two often go hand in hand and we see God in the eyes of another. So, you know, as Martin Buber said, we meet God when we go out into the world and Francis challenges us to do that. And I think helps show us how to do it as well.
0: Oh man. But I, some days would rather hole up in a monastery.
1: <laughs> I oh, totally
0: understand I, that, that.
1: I Listen, I agree. I agree. my, my, uh, my beautiful cat uh, who sits here in the office with me a lot of the time, I sometimes will look at her in my paper recycling box curled up. And I think, yeah, that's where I'd like to spend the whole day uh, as well. No, believe me, I get it. But at the same time, I make myself go out and meet the world, even if I don't want to. Um, I avoid it also, um, but sometimes, you know, I do the right thing, and I think doing the right thing often is to go out and meet the world, even if it's frightening.
0: Well, and I think talk about timely. This book being timely. I just look at um, specifically. Well, you know, we'll, I'll talk about you, the United States. I know I have podcast listeners in various countries, but um, this this is a timely message, really globally, but certainly for where we are in our own country. Uh, I there days I'd like to bury my head or not have the important conversation, but that will not get us Mm -hmm. to any kind of a good place. So, I mean, I think this, I just think the message of Francis is really timely for the world right now. Uh, And I don't know if you were thinking about that as you wrote this or not.
1: Well, I was a little bit. I mean, this is, Feed the Wolf is not a book where I talk about the pandemic or or the political situation in the U S or the UK or anything like that. But certainly it was in the back of my mind because that's the world that we've been living in for the last several years. And, and there's a lot of things that frighten us. We, I think we focus on our fears and our vulnerabilities probably more than we did 10 years ago.
0: Uh, I also thought one of the other things that came to me reading this is um, how, how much uh, the life of St. Francis reminded me of the way Jesus lived very much just walking along and whoever came into his sphere was who he talked to or ministered to or had a word for. And I mean, just and maybe and of course, you know, when he lived that he was much more in a, I assume, an agrarian kind of culture or society and um, but small things us uh, walking along he's, you know, he's not on in any kind of motorized vehicle spanning great territory every day. I mean, he just reminded me of Jesus. I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
1: Well, yeah, my thought is that it's not, it's not accidental. Um, I mean, and, and you, you're picking up on something that people have talked about for, for centuries, really, that Francis is the, the epitome of a saint who models himself after the actions of Jesus. And it, it, it's not accidental. I mean, Francis was not a scholar at all. I mean, he was, he was not even really a reader. Um, and he had really no interest in books. So, you know, I guess I should stop writing books about him. But I mean, <laughs> he, he, uh, he was actually sort of afraid of books. He thought that if you spent too much time with books, you, you might not spend enough time living the life you're supposed to live. And he's probably right. Um, but anyway, he would look at the gospels and quite, I mean, you almost have to, like, this is not the right image, but you almost have to picture him like with a pen, circling things like, oh, okay, Jesus said this, I'm going to do that. Jesus did that. Okay, I'm going to do that. And he meant it absolutely literally. Um, you know, Jesus said, don't plan for tomorrow. Francis didn't plan for tomorrow. In fact, he, you know, he would rebuke the, the friar whose job it was to cook for everybody that week because the friar was soaking the beans for the soup tomorrow. He'd say, what are you doing? Really, so you can't soak the beans for the soup tomorrow. That means you're planning for tomorrow, you know. Wow. And the guy who's cooking is like, How in the world am I going to make soup tomorrow if I don't soak the beans? It's going to be terrible. And Francis says, Well, I don't care because you're not supposed to, you're not supposed wow. to. <laughs> so he was absolutely literal.
0: Wow, I love that. Um, uh, toward the end of the book, you say Francis was a little person who did small things that changed his world. Um, and, and I I loved that because it was, it's just the reminder that for me anyway, on those days where I say, can it, does anything I do, does it matter? Or, you know, sometimes I can get upset about what's happening in our country. What can, and I'll say this to my husband, what can I, this one little person do? And he's like, you know what? You pull out your email and you send that to your congressman or your senator or something. You, you know, it does matter. It does. The, the and so I love that he was a little person who did small things that changed his world. And what a message! And,
1: and I think the Congress, the congressman, is a great example. I also think uh, maybe even more counterintuitively, going back to the gentleness of Francis, I think when you practice the gentleness that he did in little seemingly insignificant ways, it also could change your world. And I'm talking about the things that just didn't make any sense to people then and might not make as much sense to people now. But when you move through the world more, you know, gently and quietly and thoughtfully, I think that changes your world too, even though you might not be able to see it at the end of each day.
0: Well, I can see after just reading one of your books um, on Francis, Feed the Wolf, uh, why you would study his life for all these years. Um, So interesting. And and also that subtitle, Befriending Our Fears in the Way of St. Francis. Love that. I highly recommend Feed the Wolf to whoever is a reader. And it's just a a treat and a joy to have you on the podcast again. Thank you so much for your work and uh, for your writing, John.
1: Thank you, Anita. It's good to be with you.
0: And to everyone else, they say, keep the conversation going.